0: Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nowen Society and I want to welcome you to a new episode of Henry Nowen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nowen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences right around the world. Because we're new to the world of podcasts, taking time to give us a review or a thumbs up or even share this episode will mean a great deal to us and allow us to reach more people with meaningful and hopefully deeply spiritual content that continually reminds us of Henry Nouwen's writings, his encouragement, and of course, his reminder that each and every one of us is God's beloved child. So with that said, let me take a moment to introduce my guest. Today on this podcast, I am joined by a very dear and longtime friend, Brian Stiller. Brian is the global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. This global association represents some 600 million evangelical Protestants around the world. Prior to this, Brian was the president of Tyndale University and Seminary. Brian's the author of a dozen books, and together in our shared broadcast history, we created hundreds of hours of television programming together with our weekly series, Cross Currents. Brian, one of the most memorable interviews that you did for Cross Currents took place in 1995 at the L'Arche Daybreak Center with Father Henry Nowen. What was that experience like?
1: Well, Karen, wonderful to be with you on your series. But of course, we didn't know that we were just a year before his death. And for us to capture these hours of interviews with him was remarkable. Of course, Henry Nowen was a was a hero in my world offering into our Protestant community uh, the understanding of the mystical and the, the work of the spirit uh, in, in daily life. And so to meet him and to have this special privilege of, of interviewing him over these hours uh, was remarkable. And as you know, in this first one that we're going to get into, he talks about his background, uh, the caring for, for people when the SS troops had arrived in Holland. Uh, how he developed his his understanding of ministry. Uh, this is going to be a very interesting and exciting journey with Henry in this first in this first episode.
0: Well, we have a treat for our audiences today because we're going to play the first in a series of three uncut, never before heard in full interviews with Henry Nowen. When it comes to a broadcast and documentary program, we make choices about what we have time to share and what gets left on the cutting room floor. Today, our podcast audience is in for a treat. We're going to get it all in this first of three podcasts drawn from Brian Stiller's interviews with Henry Nowen. Uh,
2: Henry, your your childhood was shaped in Holland during the time of occupation. Uh, what did that do to the formation of your mind and heart and your and your understanding of God at work in life?
3: Well. It's, it's interesting I had an extremely loving caring family and that love and care became particularly clear in a time of enormous amount of stresses and struggles and so I grew up grew up during the war years and my father and mother really really did every possible thing to uh, to protect us from the violence and and the ugliness of the war and to to give us a very regular life. And both of my parents were deeply, deeply spiritual people uh, with a great love for Jesus and a great uh, desire uh, to have their children grow that way. And even my grandmother was, was even more uh, a person who, who nurtured my spiritual life very, very much. So when I was five years old, I wanted to become a priest already. <laughs> I actually never changed my mind. I, uh, I had that desire from very, very young As a very young child,
2: was there encouragement by your parents to think that way, or did you just? Well, yeah,
3: it was the the climate. I mean, it was a you know, we lived a very. uh, My father's a lawyer, and uh, and uh, my mother was a very sensitive person with an enormous literary sensitivity, and they they both encouraged uh, our whole family to live to live a life of prayer and a life of uh, you know of of, of spiritual reading and so on, and. um, and somehow the desire was there when I was very young. I was the oldest son, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, in our family we had uh, my uncle was a priest. And, uh, but um, yeah, it came very naturally. And uh, when I was even very very young, I was already thinking about yes. myself as, as as being close to Christ, but also to to be a minister somewhere.
2: You tell the story when the SS troops were trying to take your father away, yeah. And they had he had built this hiding place yes. in your home, and he was hiding there one day when the SS troops came in, and yeah. you were about to take him some food, and you didn't. As as that as as the fear element of that moment, what did that do to your understanding of of, of God at work in your own life?
3: Well, I was quite young, you know, and and I I, I somewhere. Um, I felt very, very uh, protected by God. In fact, in in all of that, and um, where I must even say that the, the German occupation and the time of war, in a way, was a time in which we we were encouraged very much to deepen the spiritual life. I've I've never felt um, you know uh, so spiritual, and so religious, precisely when our family had to be very close and, and very protective, and we prayed a lot, and we. We brought people in, in the circle of prayer. And it was, uh, yeah, I don't remember that time um, as a time in which I questioned God or wondered how God could allow all these things to happen. That wasn't part of my, my emotional uh, upbringing or thinking at all, actually.
2: You know, Henry, as I read your material and the many, many books that you've written, uh, it seems to me the central element of your writing in your ministry is defined by hope. And as I reflect on your, your time during occupation, the despair of that occupation, is that where you first learned about the hope element of the gospel?
3: I don't dare to think. Don't think so. I, you know, it was just like you know, it was the 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 what I I learned very young that 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 God was real and Jesus was very, very present. I remember as a little child, but mostly when I became around 10, I could hardly believe that anyone did not believe in Jesus or anyone did not believe in God. And, and I think what, what, what it meant was that, that I sort of felt an intimacy and a closeness and a, and a, and a directness about my relationship with God. that was sort of as close as, as you are sitting here in front of me. And, and it was amazingly, it was an obviousness to it and a directness to it. Prayer was not a problem. I just loved to pray. I loved to be in church. I loved to hear about it. I listened to every radio program. And it wasn't that I was particularly pious compared to other people. It was just natural, normal surroundings. And, um, and it was much more that uh, than, than the war uh, that, uh, that, that developed in me that holds you know, hope in God. And it was not so much hope in God that something would get better, as well as, as I would need to see the experience of God's presence here and now in our daily life. It was very, very real. And only later, it's interesting, um, that uh, when I already was ordained a priest, I had to discover that that feeling or that emotion isn't always there. And even today, I have to sometimes remember this experience of intimacy that sometimes later i not there anymore and then it becomes a question of faithfulness even when my 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 heart or my body or my my, my, my mind isn't always fully there you know what i mean yes. and so
2: but then as you as i as i kind of walk with you through your life you go you become a scholar you become well trained to the universities of the world but then you go you you move towards an interest in psychology and your life changes from being a scholar academic to being a psychologist and then a pastor and then you go to Burio in uh, Peru and you live with the poor and th- tell us about that that pilgrimage of your life and, and why you made that choice out of academia out of the great halls of Harvard to care for uh, mentally handicapped uh, here in, uh, in Canada
3: Well, as I was saying to you, from the very early on, I wanted to be a priest. And that I wanted to to speak about God to people and to bring people closer into the relationship with God. That was sort of a desire I had as a child. That's why I went to the seminary, uh, diocesan seminary, so I could be ordained young and could work in a parish. And when I was ordained, uh, the bishop Uh, didn't send me to the parish, but said, you know, would you like you to go on and study? And I said, what I would like to study is not more theology, but psychology, because I want to know a little bit more about how people behave, how they think, how they feel, what's going on in people's life. But after I'd finished psychology, and it was a psychologist, and I knew about diagnosis and about therapy, I suddenly realized that I had to integrate my spiritual journey at home and in the seminary with this psychological knowledge that I had. I I didn't want to become a psychologist. I always wanted to be a minister who has an understanding of psychology. So I I applied for a fellowship and I was accepted at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, which had a program called Religion and Psychiatry. And that was a very, very influential time for me, uh, where I, um, under the influence of Carl Menninger and others, I, I learned to integrate. My spiritual journey with my psychological knowledge and my psychological understanding and so forth. And I had excellent supervisors. But when I finished that, I just was invited to, uh, by the University of Notre Dame to, to come there and to help out a little bit in a new psychology department. And so I, I wrote the bishop and said, Well, I can come home yet. Would it would be all right if I, if I accept that for a while. And he said, he said Yes, do it. And so I started to teach. But my teaching from the very beginning, and I would say to the very end, was more a pastoral teaching than a scholarly teaching. I was very much interested in in bringing people into a a, uh, knowledge of God that was very real, very simple, very direct, and very very much helping them in their own journey. So I I never thought of myself very much as a scholar. I thought of myself, uh, I would say, I would really say as a, as, as a pastor who used the classroom as its pulpit, you know what I mean? Uh, even though I did a lot of, of research and a lot of academic work, the, 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 the main interest for me was always um, ministerial formation. And even in the psychology department, I invited priests uh, and, and ministers to come and you know, do pastoral psychology. And when I went back to Holland for a little bit, I studied another little bit, a few years of theology to reconnect with the theological uh, uh, tradition. And then I was invited to Yale uh, to, to be there in the theology department uh, at the Divinity School. And I, I, I was suddenly um, found myself surrounded with, with hundreds of young people, women and men from all religious denominations from backgrounds, you know, all from Baptists and Congregationalists and Episcopalians and people from Methodist background and some Catholics and, mm-hmm. you know, and this was a man and women from, you know, and I was absolutely fascinated when I was invited to come to this school that was enormously rich in variation and so. And I was invited to, sp- to be a pastoral theologian there, but they gave me an enormous amount of freedom. And I felt what I had to teach was to integrate uh, the integration between the spiritual life and the life of ministry—that's See, that's what I was interested in.
2: But, but it, it seems that, that that your your ministry wasn't just to be a to use a pulpit and a psychiatrist's couch side by side. No, 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 no. But no. that indeed you were exploring other people's needs through your own pain and suffering in your personal journey. So there yep. was a there was a the deep integration yep. of self into
3: your ministry. Yep. I was very, very convinced from the very beginning that that ministry is to lay down your life for your friends, Okay, Like Jesus said, being a shepherd is the one who lays down his life for his friends. But laying down your life, you have to have first a life to lay down, you know? You have to know who you are. And by laying down your life, I don't mean physical martyrdom. I meant your pain. Your anguish, your doubts, your confusion, your, your this struggle with your sexuality, your struggle with relationships, you, 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 knowing and not knowing, and the whole complex you're dealing with, living in a world where there's a lot of injustices. So you live all that interiorly, and how can you how can you get in touch with what you're living? How can you really enter into that and discover there God's healing grace? and and when you and to make that experience that adventure with God is in your own life as as a kind of the source of your ministry and that's how i even got up got to this concept of wounded healer uh, that that came out of my own sense of loneliness when i came to the states i wasn't you know wasn't uh, feeling all that connected my feeling of um, you know uh, my need for friendship and community, and I didn't have that very much, my anxiety, whether I would do well or not so well, all these these human struggles that everybody has, I started to try to articulate that, to to find words around it and to and and then to say, well, well, if you're in touch with that, then you can bring other people in touch with that. And then you you become like the the fertile ground <laughs> for God to, to To let the word sink in, you know what I mean. It's yes. like it's like it's like if the ground is not broken up, uh, how can the seed sink in? And I felt more important than announcing good news was first of all to to break the ground where the good news can bear fruit. You know what I mean. Uh,
2: I'm ordained as you are, and so as as in a sense yeah. church professionals, uh, the, the 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 tradition has been for us to be kind of have it all together and be the dispensers of grace and dispensers of wisdom. And so to be a wounded healer really cuts across the grain of professionalism in our
3: culture, doesn't it? It does, it does. I think think we live in a world where professionalism suggests that somebody are strong and others are weak, or some people have it together and others not and that those who are strong should help the weak. Now that's not, I don't think, what the Gospel is speaking about. I think it, it belongs to the center of the Gospel that God became vulnerable, that God stripped himself from power, that he didn't cling to his equality with God, but emptied himself and became a human being like we are, and that the essence of, of our faith is that, that, that Jesus became in everything like we are, and, and I think that, that that means, basically for me personally, uh, as a follower of Jesus, what I have to offer is, is, first of all, my own vulnerability, my own weakness, my own brokenness, my own uh, wounds. Now not uncared for, I mean I, I, I mean I have to, my wounds can only be a source of healing for others if I care for my wounds, if I bandage them well, if I pay attention to that. But basically, my, my gift is, is not my power, but my willingness to be powerless with other people who are powerless, and and to create a, a fellowship of the weak, and trust that there, God's God's healing power will become visible. I mean, I'm very very convinced that that what we have to offer is is is, is, is vulnerability to lay down your life for your friends to. To be, uh, to be compassionate. That means to suffer with. To, to feel the anguish and the pain of others in your own guts so that you can be with people. Just, just for a second, just look at the story of Jesus and Naim. Mm-hmm. The woman of Naim, the woman of who, uh, who brings her, her, her only uh, son to the grave. Uh, and Jesus sees a widow who, that means he lost her husband, see, and he has only one son who died. And, and, and it says Jesus was moved by compassion. And if you literally look to the Greek, it says he, he felt the suffering of that woman in his guts. There's a Greek word, And like, the word means guts. Jesus experienced the anguish, the loneliness, the pain of that woman in his own interiority and he could be with her so close uh, that, that that in that closeness he he uh, he he was moved so much that it was a movement to life mm. and, and and therefore was able to give the son back to the mother but, uh, but the miracle is not that the son was raised to life i mean the son is going to die later on anyhow but the, the, the miracle was that, that Jesus loved so deeply and affectionately this mother that he, he gave her back uh, new life. You know, and, and, so, and I think that's, that's what ministry is about, is, is to, 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 to not worrying about raising dead people to life, but first of all, to be compassionate with those who suffer losses and trust that that will give life. Yeah. <laughs> that's something else,
2: The first time we met, Henry, was at the parliamentary prayer break it was mm-hmm. in Ottawa. I did the evening uh, yeah. dinner and you did the morning breakfast uh-huh. and uh, I was astounded by your approach uh, you were standing in at the uh, uh-huh. in front of the head table and the prime minister was yeah. there and the heads of the opposition parties and the head of the senate and the uh, head of the supreme court and the speaker of the house uh, all the symbols of power and you stood and you opened by saying I have a word of god from god you today." And I thought, how audacious. <laughs> but it was interesting as people just sat back and you could almost see by their body language there were, they were saying, and what is that word? If, if other people that I know who are public as religious spokespeople had said that, they would have said, who do you think you are? But there was something out of your, your weakness that day, you had spiritual power.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How does that come to you? How do you, uh, how do you appropriate the power of God in your own brokenness and weakness? So you were spiritually powerful to the
3: powerful, and yet you were weak. Well, power the power of God becomes visible through our powerlessness. And first of all, that's what you see in Jesus. Jesus is the most powerless of all human beings. I mean, he, is, he not only became human, but he, he died in the most, well, most horrendous death, stripped not only from his clothes, but stripped from friends, stripped from his experience of God. God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus was completely powerless. And you hang on this cross with nothing, and and it's and then this incredible uh, word that John says, and I am standing here, and out of his sight came water and blood, as signs of life. You know. New life was born at the moment of total, total um, emptying. And I think, I think when I was claiming some authority. It, it was, it was uh, an authority that I claimed not because I know something or I have a particular voice that speaks to me, but it was more that I, I felt very much that I, that I, who live with very weak people, very broken people, very, very nonverbal people, a community of very weakness, that in that community I had discovered and seeing the power of God and the power of God's healing, the power of God's love that comes out of, out of brokenness, out of weakness, out of vulnerability, out of people who are very marginal, very poor, very, um, and quite often, quote, useless in the eyes of the world. And I discover that precisely there, you know, where people are poor and where I am poor and where we are poor, God's, God's power is manifest. And we are empowered but it's not a power that comes from from control it's not a power that comes from having things uh, all in your hands in fact it's the powerlessness of the person who who finally stretches out his hand and is girded and led to places he rather wouldn't go and i felt very very free to say you know I, i'm a very powerless person i live with powerless people but I am deeply convinced that, that this is the place from where I have something to say that comes from God.
2: But that's so radically different from the whole cultural assumption of power and
3: authority. Uh, it is, but that's the gospel. It's countercultural in that sense. That's, that's, that's also what it means for me to live in a community uh, where I am now. Uh, that's why I finally chose to, to leave the university and, and, and join a community. Is, is that's so, what to be empowered by the poor, to be empowered, not so much, I don't have power because I have a degree in theology, I'm not powered because I read many books, or I'm not powered because I know so many things. I might know a few, but basically, I, not, that's not where my power comes from. My power comes f- from the empowerment through living with the poor. That's where it comes from. And that's what, you know, that's what the whole center of the Gospel is about, blessed are the poor. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who care for the poor. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who help the poor. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who grieve. They will be consoled. It doesn't say, blessed are the consolers, blessed are the helpers. Blessed are those who know better. It says, blessed are those who are weak, who are broken, who are poor, who are mourning, who don't have it together, because in their brokenness, there is a blessing hidden. And blessing means a power of God's presence. There are good words hidden. You know, blessing comes from benediction. Bene means good. Diction means saying things. And God is saying good things precisely in the place where people are broken and weak. And that's where the healing power of God can become manifest. And and, and I think that's what I've seen. I've seen it all the time. I mean, it's not an idea. I mean, this is what what I'm living day by day. I'm, I'm living with people who don't speak people who don't walk people who are very very weak but in a fact who, who radiates out of them God's healing power
2: but it isn't just the fact that they are poor or that they're weak but that God but is it because God is at work within their poverty and their brokenness like is poverty and brokenness of itself God speaking or is it the world or the environment or the means by which God speaks
3: well, God had chosen the weak mm, to shame the strong. It's, uh, Paul speaks about in Corinthians. Um, uh, he had chosen the little ones, those who are not wise. God kept choosing those who are on the margin of the society to speak, to speak. Because those who have nothing to lose, who in a way are poor—that means have nothing to lose—are the ones who become the carrier of good news. You know, it's it's very it's very real you know you know what is what is important in life what is important in life important in life is um, things like like um, knowing that you are loved, knowing that you belong, knowing that you are not uh, that you're not um, an outcast? No, no, no. Knowing that you, you're somewhere safe. And, 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 and in the world in which we live, in the world in which we live, I mean, people are saying, you know, you, you better prove that you're good. You know, why don't you do something relevant? Okay? Why don't you do something relevant so you, people can, uh, can say you're a successful person? Why do you do something that makes you popular you know, so people see you? and you have a good name why do you have no power so you can influence people with your with whatever you 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 have you know and and jesus is saying these are temptations you know i jesus is saying himself i don't need to prove to the world that i'm loved you know i don't need to change stones into bread which is to be relevant i don't need to jump from the tower to be on television, and to be popular. I don't need to kneel down and have power. I don't need any of that to prove that I am the beloved son of God, that I am the beloved child of God.
2: I just am the beloved. I am.
3: That's there. And, you know, and I'm seeing all this because the people that I'm living with are precisely the people who, who aren't successful, aren't popular, aren't powerful. And in a mysterious way, because they aren't able to prove anything, They can live out the truth of who they are, that in their brokenness, in their weakness, in their inability to be successful and popular and powerful, they communicate somewhere in a very direct way that they are the beloved children of God. And my task as an articulate person who can talk and can do a lot of things is in a way to bring these gifts of the poor to the front and offer them to our society as a source of healing.
2: Is that why the gospel calls us to conversion to, n- to the That's new right. birth? Because it's so radical in uh, in in opposition to the cultural norms, the cultural, the prevailing attitudes of today.
3: Oh, it's it's enormously. Uh, That's why irradical. conversion
2: is essential to a person coming to Christ.
3: But conversion, conversion. first of all, it's an ongoing thing. It doesn't happen once. Conversion is a lifelong process. Conversion is claiming again and again and again the truth of myself. And what is the truth of myself? That I'm God's beloved child long before I was born and my father and mother and my teachers and my church got involved. And I will be God's beloved child long after I've died. I go from, from God's intimate Embrace until God's intimate embrace. God says, "I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you uh, before you were born. (laughs) I've I've knitted you together in your mother's womb. I've molded you in the in the depths of the world. I was there long before any human being was there, and I I loved you. I loved you, and I've written your name in my hand. You're safe in the palm of my hand, long before you were born, and I'm sending you into this world for a little." time 20 30 40 50 60 70 80 years that's just a little bit so that you have a chance to say I love you too see that's what life is about life is simply saying yes to God's to God saying I love you and you say yes I want to say yes to that I want to say yes I, I and all the struggles and the pain and the anguish and the losses that take place in our lives are endless opportunities to claim God's love I lose my mother and I mean Deep grief, but can I live that grief as a way to say yes to my lovedness, belovedness, before I was born? You know, I lose a job. Can I somewhere live it, not to become bitter or angry or, or, or resentful or jealous, but can I somewhere claim that even though I lost my job, even though I'm not relevant, even though people praise me, even I'm not a big shot, that still I'm the beloved child of God. I can start living from that place. I, see, that's the spiritual life to mm-hmm. live from the place of your spiritual truth. And he, that's what Jesus heard in, in the Jordan. When he came out of the water, a voice came and said, You are my beloved son. On you my favor rests. And Jesus lived from that place. And people loved him. And people hated him. And people said, Hosanna. And people said, Christopher. All that's what happened. But Jesus says, I remain the beloved son of God. And everybody believes me, but my father will never leave me alone. You know, and it's from that place, and he calls us to believe that you and I are as beloved and as, as important to God as Jesus. And uh, we, we shouldn't say, well, Jesus was, was the Son of God and we are not. I mean, Jesus says, just as the Father loved me, so he loves you. He calls you the beloved. You are becoming, I'm uh, calling you to claim the truth of your, your divine child, that you are the child of God divine childhood
0: Well Brian wasn't that something what did you think of what you were listening to again
1: after these years to listen to Henry it was like it happened yesterday what struck me Karen was how he had gone from a priest to a scholar to a psychologist to a pastor uh, he used this notion he said i i used the classroom as a pulpit For ministerial formation he took the essence of his faith his understanding of how to deal with faith in a scholarly way so it's not trite or frivolous and then as a psychologist he understood the emotional framing of a person and how the gospel speaks into that life it is it is so it's it's 360 degrees he just has a way of of enveloping me as he talks about life about ministry about hope and so to listen to him again is just uh, uh, such a wonderful treat
0: i always love being around people that are growing and in a sense henry could have stopped at any point and said this is what i am but he was on this journey he was on this and it's it's interesting how he discovers you know the whole issue of our weaknesses are what we can give to others. And from this, we can really connect with them and we we really have something to say into their lives. I mean, it is profound, isn't it? It is the the journey he takes us on and he challenges us to go on uh, is to be so vulnerable, to be so open. And,
1: Kerry, remember, I used the story of, of, of the Ottawa prayer breakfast when he stood before the prime minister and the head of the Supreme Court and others at this large prayer breakfast. And he said, I have something from God for you today. I was so shocked that he would have the have the temerity to say that in front of all these people. But they just settled back and there was an anointing. There was a presence of Henry. And, of course, coming out of his message that day of the wounded healer, he spoke out of his powerlessness to power about the presence and power of the spirit, so it was it was a, a, a coming out of a powerless person who had a powerful message to people who were of power. It was a marvelous uh, triage of of ideas and the presence of people uh, as he spoke that morning.
0: You know, Brian, one of the things that I remember about this series of interviews was that Henry felt he was talking to a peer, a, a, a pastor, someone who really got it. He appreciated the depth of your questions, but also you were comrades in this, and it was really quite wonderful to be a part of. Um, I know we had tried so hard to get Henry on our show, and we would have liked to have brought him to the round table. I'm so grateful he said no, and we ended up in his really literally in his living room talking with him with uh, you know as people look at the images behind or some of his library some of the books but people are in for a treat because this is just the first of a series of three Uh, podcast so I I hope you'll come back for the next one you will not be disappointed if you did enjoy this podcast again we'd be so grateful if you take time to give us a stellar review or a thumbs up or, or share it with your friends and family as well you'll find links in the show notes for our website you'll even find a link to the documentary Journey of the Heart The Life of Henry Nowen and in this film you're going to see Brian Stiller interviewing Henry Nowen thank you again for listening Until next time.